Word of God for our consideration this morning comes to us from Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice confidently on the basis of our hope for the glory of God. Not only this, but we also rejoice confidently in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces patient endurance, and patient endurance produces tested character, and tested character produces hope. And hope will not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For at the appointed time, while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. It is rare indeed that someone will die for a righteous person. Perhaps someone might actually go so far as to die for a person who has been good to him. But God shows his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, it is even more certain that we will be saved from God's wrath through him. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, it is even more certain that since we have been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. And not only is this so, but we also go on rejoicing confidently in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received this reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Your fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who suffered so that we may have lasting peace. For we Christians who take Lent seriously, it can often be at the same time both the most rewarding and the most challenging season of the church here. It's rewarding in the sense that we get to focus closely on the cross, on Jesus' suffering and his death, which brings us peace with God, which brings us forgiveness of sins and salvation It's challenging in the sense that we have to also confront the fact that it was our sins that caused him to go through that agony, that pain, that death, and that hell. Also something that we can't avoid confronting in the season of Lent are the paradoxes of Lent. A paradox is something that doesn't seem to make sense, it doesn't seem like it could possibly be true, and yet it is. The Bible is filled with different paradoxes. Jesus once said that whoever wants to save his life must lose it, and whoever saves his life in this world will lose it forever. And that doesn't seem to make any sense until you remember who is speaking it. It's Jesus, the one who laid down his life three days later only to take it up again. Authentic Christianity, as Jesus defined it in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, is filled with even more paradoxes. He said, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. Again, those things do not seem to make any sense, but they only become true through the reality of the gospel, through faith in Jesus Christ. And today we confront another one of those very challenging paradoxes that we are to find joy in suffering, both in Jesus' suffering and in our own. Near the 
conclusion of World War I, the author, H.G. Wells, made an observation that was shared by many people living around the world at the time. He observed regarding World War I that this is likely the war to end all wars. That having seen the depravity, the violence, the, the death that occurred as a result of World War I, there's no way that humanity is ever going to make the same mistake again. We're never going to get in a war that would be that large, that all-consuming, that, that deadly. Sadly, reality has a way of bringing us to our knees, right? As humans, I mean, World War I laid the groundwork for an even deadlier war in World War II, leading on to Korea and Vietnam and the global war on terror and now Russia and Ukraine, another war that has embroiled nations around the world. The war to end all wars, not quite. But we see this lack of peace not only in wars that happen in our world, but you just have to turn on the nightly news, right? Every night, the, the anchors on every news station catalog all of the, the terrible things that have been happening in our world, in our own neighborhoods, in our own communities, the, the carjackings and the thefts and the robberies and even things far worse than that. But we don't have to go even that far to see the lack of peace in our world, do we? We lack peace in our own homes, our own families, our own marriages. We lack peace in our own hearts because we know that things are not all right in our own lives. We know that lack of peace. We sense that lack of peace. But here's the thing. That lack of peace is just symptomatic of a, a bigger problem, a bigger issue. The fact that we don't have peace with God. Our sins have separated us from Him. We cannot call on Him as we stand. He has become hostile to us because we have raised our fists in rebellion against Him. And there was nothing that we could do about it. But here's the remarkable thing, that while we were helpless, God took action. God did something about it. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever you hear that word justified, imagine a courtroom. That's where Paul is transporting us with that word. Into a courtroom. Into God's courtroom. And we are the ones wearing the orange jumpsuits with shackles on our legs and around our wrists. We are the ones on trial. And the charges against us fall under ten categories. Ten categories of first-degree felonies that each one deserve an eternity of punishment in hell. They fall under these categories. Failure to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Failure to call upon God's name in trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. Failure to gladly hear the Word of God and study it in our own lives. Failure to honor and respect those in authority over us. Failure to help and befriend our neighbor in his every bodily need. Failure to live pure and decent lives in words and actions. Failure to help our neighbor keep what God has given him. Failure to, fa to, to keep from lying about our neighbor or giving him a bad name. Failure to be content with what God has given us in this life. 
And there's no argument about it. There's no fighting against it. We know we're guilty, and more importantly, God knows that we are guilty. But then a remarkable thing happens in this courtroom. After the devil is, is done lodging all of his accusations, after the, all the testimony, all the witnesses have been presented, God slams down his gavel and declares us not guilty and says, remove the shackles, you are free to go. Now, if something like that were to happen in our world today, um, what's the most famous recent court case? The uh, Alec Murdoch case down in South Carolina, that lawyer who was convicted of killing his, his wife and his son. If that were to happen in that case, if he were allowed to go free, there would be riots, there would be outrage. How could this happen? This is a miscarriage of justice, and yet that's exactly what God does. He declares the guilty to be innocent. How is that possible? The word therefore tells us how it's possible. It points back to the previous verse, chapter 4, verse 25, where Paul writes, Jesus was handed over to death because of our trespasses and was raised to life because of our justification. That's the greatest paradox of all, isn't it? The thing that doesn't seem to make any sense. Because Jesus suffered the unimaginable horrors of the cross. Now we have peace. How does that work? How does it work that because Jesus, the Son of God, suffered the torments of hell, that we get peace? Paul goes on to explain. He says, At the appointed time, while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. It is rare indeed that someone will die for a righteous person. Perhaps someone might actually go so far as to die for a person who has been good to him. But God shows his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does this mean? What, what is Paul saying? What is he laying out here by saying you might, someone might die for a good person or a righteous person, but, but that's not what Jesus did? Does the name Aaron Feiss ring a bell with you? Probably not. It didn't, his name didn't receive much coverage. But the name Nicholas Cruz did. Maybe that name rings a bell with you. He was the young man who savagely murdered 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida about five years ago. You may have heard his name fairly recently because he was just sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole this past November. You've probably heard Nicholas Cruz's name, but not Aaron Feiss. And I think Aaron Feiss's name deserves to be remembered much more than Mr. Cruz's. Aaron Feiss was an assistant football coach at Parkland High School, and he was also a part-time security guard. And as Mr. Cruz was rampaging through the schools, through the hallways, cutting down students as they stood, Mr. Feist threw himself in front of a group of teenage girls, in front of a group of students, giving up his life in the process, taking a bullet for them. He made the ultimate sacrifice. He laid down his life for those students to save theirs. Now that's a fairly unusual thing, isn't it? You don't hear too often about times when people give up their lives for others. And yet, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus went beyond that. Uh, Mr. Feist gave up his life for 
you know, apparently innocent students, they hadn't done anything wrong. They didn't deserve to be mowed down by a serial killer. But Jesus did the opposite. Jesus gave up his life for us, for us when we were helpless and God's enemies. We were far from innocent when Jesus died for us. So if you want to use that, that analogy, what Jesus did was not take a bullet for some innocent students, but he took a bullet for Mr. Cruz, the mass murderer. Jesus said, put the shackles on me, send me away to life in prison, or even worse, send me off to death so that this guilty person doesn't have to suffer. That's the glory of Lent. That's the amazing thing that Jesus did for us. He died for us while we were still God's enemies, while we were still sinners, rebels against God. The result is that through faith we have peace with God. Because Jesus took all of God's wrath, all of his anger, and, and absorbed it in himself, in his body, and in his death, we now have peace with God. Now, let's be clear what kind of peace this is. This is not the peace that the world constantly is talking about. You, know, you listen to anything on the media. The world is talking about a peace that looks like the end of racism, the end of sexism, the end of war, the end of climate change and global warming and natural disasters and whatever else it may be, that's the kind of peace that the world is looking for. That is not the kind of peace that the Lord Jesus purchased for us. The Lord Jesus purchased peace with God for us. And that's better than any other kind of peace. It's better than peace in our marriages. It's better than peace in our families. It's better than peace in our communities or our world because this peace cannot be shaken. This peace cannot be changed. It is an objective fact. Whatever is going on in your life right now, whatever hostilities, whatever conflicts, whatever pain there is in your life right now, this is true. You are at peace with God because Jesus purchased that peace with his blood on the cross. That's peace that no one can take away from you. It's also peace that the devil cannot bear to deal with. He cannot bear to let you have and hold on to that peace. He wants to rip that peace out of your hands. He wants to make you think that you are still at war with God. He wants to make you cower and think that at any moment God could bring down the sledgehammer of his wrath on you because of what you have done. He's very devious about how he goes about this too. I think as we grow older, one of the ways that he works to instill this uncertainty about the peace we have with God in our hearts is to make us ask the question, well, what happens if I die while I'm sinning? What happens if I die in my sin? What happens if I die and I have to go meet my maker when I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing? Roman Catholicism has tried to solve that problem with what they call extreme unction or the last rites. It's this emergency call that, that you would put into your priest so that right before you die, they can give you communion one last time and give you a blessing with oil one last time to assure you that you're forgiven. But seriously, who knows when they're going to die? Who of us knows if we're going to make it back home after we leave here today? Who knows if we'll see tomorrow or spring or next year? None of us can know when the end is coming, and yet the devil wants to make us think 
if you die and you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, then you will face judgment, then you will face damnation, then you will face hell. But Paul grants us a a great comfort here as Christians. He says, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The picture there is that we are standing under the condition of peace with God. We are standing under the condition of His grace, of His forgiveness. No matter what we are doing or where we are going, we stand under God's grace. That is what Jesus purchased for us. And now you may say, well, we continue to sin, don't we? I mean, most of us have probably sinned even as we've been sitting here in church this morning. We continue to sin, right? Yes, we do. And that's another paradox of Christianity. That even as we are sinners, we are also justified in the courtroom of God. Martin Luther encapsulated that that paradox in a Latin phrase, he said that we as Christians are simul justus et peccator, which means we are simultaneously sinners and saints. Simultaneously sinners and justified in the courtroom of God. That's the peace that Jesus worked for us. That even though we are painfully aware of our sinfulness, we are painfully aware that we have destroyed peace in our own lives, in our own hearts, and we are responsible for the lack of peace that there is with God. Jesus came to win peace. Peace that is lasting. Peace that is not something that can be lost by breaking the speed limit or saying something unkind to a loved one. It is peace that lasts even, yes, even if we die in sin. Because the reality is that we will die in sin. Sinful thoughts come at the speed of thought. Right? We, every one of our words, thoughts, and actions is filled with sin. We will die in sin, but we die at peace with God. That's peace for you, that's peace for me, that's peace forever. And I think just taken in an isolated fashion, we could deal with that paradox, right? It's okay for us to think, well, if Jesus had to suffer to bring me peace with God, I, I, I can deal with that, I can grasp that. But if, if we leave it there, we might walk away with a warped view of Christianity. It's this warped view that has permeated so many churches in our country and our world. It's the idea that, well, if that's true, if we have peace with God, if He's not angry at us anymore, then I should experience peace in my life. If there's peace in a vertical relationship with God, then there should be peace in my horizontal life in this world. And that would be a warped view of Christianity. And so we come to the second paradox of Lent, that is this. We also rejoice confidently in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces patient endurance and patient endurance produces tested character and tested character produces hope. And hope will not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Rejoicing in Jesus' suffering on the cross, that's one thing. Rejoicing in my suffering, whether it be mental or physical or spiritual, I'm supposed to rejoice in those times, in those things? Isn't it just the opposite more frequently? Isn't when I'm suffering, isn't that when I question whether God really is angry with me? Whether He's punishing me because I've, I've done something wrong? You think of Job. That's what Job's friends said. You must have done really something wrong, Job, because the Lord is punishing you in this fashion. Isn't that when we question that 
Jesus' suffering actually won anything for us? Isn't that when we're most likely to even give up hope in ever being saved? How can we possibly rejoice in our sufferings? We have to be clear on what kind of suffering Paul is talking about here. He's definitely not talking about the things that we suffer on account of our own sinfulness, our own disobedience, our own rebellion against God or our neighbor. He's not talking about that. Peter makes that clear in his first letter. He is talking about whatever we happen to suffer because we are Christians. He's talking about the ridicule, the mockery, the persecution that we face, whether it's from our own family members or at work or, or from the media. You realize that jokes can't be told. There's no humor involved with any other religion other than Christianity. But Christianity is an open target when we suffer that, when we hear those jokes, when we hear our faith being mocked. That is part of the suffering that Paul is referring to here. It may be, it may be the suffering that we take on simply because we are, are Christians. Suffering that other people, unbelievers, don't have to deal with. I mean, all of you this morning, you could have been sleeping in for an extra hour, but you woke up early. You set your clocks ahead so you could be here to worship your Lord. That's a suffering that I'm sure you noticed. There weren't many people out on the sidewalks or the roads this morning. But you took on that suffering because Jesus suffered for you. It may be the suffering that we take on when we confront our loved ones with their sin. And we tell them bluntly, if you continue to live this way, you will not spend eternity with me and with your Lord in heaven. And they may get angry and they may shout and they may slam the door and you may not talk to them for a while. But you take on that suffering because you know that Jesus has suffered for you. It may be the suffering that Christian parents take on in order to give their children a full-time Christian education. It's not cheap. It's not easy. It takes a lot of time to transport them back and forth to school. And maybe you have to give up your dream car or your dream home or your dream vacation to do so, but you, you take on that suffering because Jesus has suffered for you. In the end, it is all of the general suffering that we face in this sinful world. The diseases, the sicknesses, the illnesses, finally death, is the suffering that we endure and we rejoice in because we know that Jesus has suffered for us. Again, what sense does that make? How can we rejoice in our suffering? How does suffering build our hope? And again, Paul explains that too. He draws the, the line there. He says, we rejoice confidently in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces patient endurance and patient endurance produces, produces tested character and tested character produces hope. So he's saying it starts with hope and it ends with hope. It starts with the hope that we are already made right with God through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and it ends with hope. He says that when we suffer, that produces patient endurance. Patient endurance, think of, think of your endurance runner. Think of running a marathon, and you have to build up that endurance in your body and in your legs in order to be able to do that. That's what suffering builds up, and it produces tested character. Tested character is, is, is like being a rock in a, in a thunderstorm. That you won't be shaken no matter what else is going on around you. Or to draw another analogy, um, the, 
McFarland High School girls made it to state this year. I'm sure a lot of you were aware of that. Unfortunately, they lost on Friday, but their lives, their lives as student athletes, they, it began with hope, right? Many months ago, as they began their season with uh, captain's practices and, and all other practices and running up and down the court, it began with the hope of getting to this point, of getting to the state championship, the state tournament. And, and so because they had that hope, they sacrificed. They sacrificed physically and mentally. They sacrificed their time and their energy and their bodies because of the hope of that championship. Now, their hopes didn't quite reach where they wanted to be. They, they lost in the semifinals. But that's where the hope that an athlete like that can have is different than our hope because our hope is sure. Our hope is certain. Nothing will stop us from reaching our ultimate goal. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by his blood, it is even more certain that we will be saved from God's wrath from him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, it is even more certain that since we have been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. Jesus has already done the most difficult thing. He's already reconciled us to God by his blood. And so therefore, in Paul's eyes, nothing could be easier than carrying us safely through this life, through suffering, through pain, through death, all the way to heaven. I've used the analogy in an Easter sermon before, but you know how when you open up a brand new Kleenex box, that first one can just be a pain to get out. It tears, it shreds, you can't get to it. But then after that, most of the rest of those Kleenexes are easy to pull out of the box. And that's what Paul is saying here, that Jesus has done the hard part. He's opened the path to heaven for repentant sinners like us. And now nothing could be easier than for Jesus to take us home to be with him in heaven. That's the hope that we have that sustains us throughout whatever we suffer in this life, that heaven is already ours. It's still a tough paradox. I'm not saying as you walk out those doors it's going to be easy to be joyful in the midst of your suffering. It's a difficult thing to understand, especially when you are suffering. But we rejoice today even in the midst of suffering. We rejoice in Jesus' suffering because that brought us peace with God. We rejoice in our own suffering because it produces our hope. Right? The longer you live in this world, the more you realize this world is not what it's cracked up to be. This isn't a place I'd want to spend eternity, would you? And so that increases our longing for heaven. It's a tough paradox, but it's a paradox that increases our hope and sustains our joy here and now. Amen.